What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Thanks for coming back. And let's, uh, let's just go over where we left off in the last chapter. Uh, chapter two. Uh, Lord Harry is a jerk. He, just like any other manipulative, abusive member of a relationship, has uh, been kind of brainwashing Dorian into thinking that uh, the hedonism is the way to go. Lord Harry just kind of wants to get laid. So he is uh, working on uh, Dorian to take advantage of life while he's young because it's all going to be gone and you're going to wish you could be more of a loose, easygoing guy when you're older and no one wants you. Um, the hedonism part probably worked. Uh, next thing you know, Dorian is uh, kind of fussy and he's going to start lashing out by uh, having some loose morals. But uh, the you're only going to be so young thing really backfires uh, where Dorian... After seeing the painting and resenting how it'll stay young forever, uh, says that he'll sell his soul to the devil to stay young uh, while the painting gets older. Uh, then goes out to go see a movie with Harry, and uh, the artist, Basil, has his heart broken because basically had the man he loves taken away from him. And that's pretty much where we left off. So let's get into chapter three. At half past twelve the next day, Lord Harry Watton strolled from Curzon Street over to the Albany to call on his uncle, Lord Firmer, a genial if somewhat rough-mannered old bachelor, whom the outside world called selfish because it derived no particular benefit from him, but who was considered generous by society as he fed the people who amused him. His father had been our ambassador at Madrid when Isabella was young and prim, unthought of, but had retired from the diplomatic service in a capricious moment of annoyance on not being offered the embassy at Paris, a post which he considered that he was fully entitled by reason of his birth. His indolence, the good English of his dispatches, and his inordinate passion for pleasure. The son, who had been his father's secretary, 
had resigned along with his chief, somewhat foolishly as he thought at the time, and on succeeding some months later to the title, had set himself to the serious study of the great aristocratic art of doing absolutely nothing. He had two large townhouses, but preferred to live in chambers as it was less trouble, and took most of his meals at his club. He paid some attention to the management of his collieries in the Midland counties, excusing himself for this taint of industry on the ground that one advantage of having coal was that it enabled a gentleman to afford the decency of burning wood on his own hearth. In politics, he was a Tory, except when the Tories were in office, during which period he roundly abused them for being a pack of radicals. He was a hero to his valet, who bullied him, and a terror to most of his relations, whom he bullied in turn. Only England could have produced him, and he always said that his country was going to the dogs. His principles were out of date, but there was a good deal to be said for his prejudices. When Lord Henry entered the room, he found his uncle sitting in a rough shooting coat, smoking a trout and grumbling over the times. "'Well, Harry,' said the old gentleman, "'what brings you out so early? "'I thought you dandies never got up till two "'and were not visible till five. Uh, "'Pure family affection, I assure you, Uncle George. "'I want to get something out of you.' "'Money, I suppose,' said Lord Firmer, "'making a wry face. "'Well, sit down and tell me about it. "'Young people nowadays imagine that money is everything.' "'Yes,' murmured Lord Henry, settling his buttonhole in his coat. "'And when they grow older, they know it. "'But I don't want money. "'It is only people who pay their bills who want that. "'Uncle George, and I never pay mine. "'Credit is the capital of a younger son "'and lives charmingly upon it. "'Besides, I always deal with Dartmoor's tradesmen, "'and consequently, they never bother me. "'What I want is information. Eh. Not useful information, of course. Useless <laughs> information. Well, I can tell you anything that is uh, an English blue book, Harry. Although those fellows nowadays write a lot of nonsense. When I was in the diplomatic, things were much better. But I hear they let them in now by examination. What can you expect? Examinations, sir, are pure humbug from the beginning to the end. And if a man is a gentleman, he knows quite enough. And if he is not a gentleman, whatever he knows is bad for him. Mr. Dorian Gray does not belong to Blue Books, Uncle George, said Lord Henry languidly. Mr. Dorian Gray? Who is he? asked Lord Firmer, knitting his bushy white eyebrows. That is what I've come to learn, Uncle George, or rather I know who he is. He is the last Lord Kelso's grandson. His mother was a Devereux. Margaret, Lady Margaret Devereux, I want you to tell me about his mother. What was she like? Whom did she marry? You've known nearly everybody in your time, so you might have known her. I am very much interested in Mr. Gray at present. I have only just met him. Kelso's grandson, echoed the old gentleman. Kelso's grandson, of course. I knew his mother intimately. I believe I was at her uh, christening. She was an extraordinarily beautiful girl, Margaret Devereux, and made all of the men frantic by running away with penniless young fellow, a mere nobody, sir, a, sobl- a subaltern, a subaltern. I'm pretty sure I know what that means, but let's look that one up. 
Subaltern. Subaltern. What's the definition? Uh, oh, a person who is lower in position or rank, a subordinate. Well, was that really worth looking up? Probably not. Uh, a subaltern in a foot regiment or something of that kind. Certainly, I remember the whole thing as if it happened yesterday. The poor chap was killed in a duel at a spa a few months after the marriage. There was an ugly story about it. Uh, they said Kelso got some uh, rascally adventurer, some Belgian brute, to insult his son-in-law in public. Paid him, sir, to do it. Paid him. And that fellow spit it in the man as if he had been a pigeon. The thing was hushed up. But a gad, Kelso, uh, his chapalone, and the club for some time afterwards, he brought his daughter back with him, I was told, and she never spoke to him again. Oh, yes. It was a bad business. The girl died, too. Died within a year. She was left a son, did she? I had forgotten that. What sort of uh, boy is he? Is he like his mother? He must be a good-looking chap. Uh, he's very good-looking, assented Lord Henry. I hope he will... Fall into proper hands, continued the old man. He should not have a pot of money waiting for him if Kelso did the right thing by him. His mother had money, too. All the Selby, Selby property came to her uh, through her grandfather. Her grandfather hated Kelso, thought him a mean dog. He was, too. Uh, he came to Madrid once when I was there. Egad, I was ashamed of him. The queen used to ask me uh, about the English noble who was always quarreling with the cabmen about their fares. They made quite a story of it. I didn't dare show my face at court for a month. I hope he treated his grandson better than he did the Jarvies. I don't know, answered Lord Henry. I fancy that the boy will be well off. He is not of age yet. He has Selby, I know. He told me so, and his mother was very beautiful. Margaret Devereux was one of the loveliest creatures I ever saw, Harry. What on earth induced her to behave as she did, I could never understand. She could have married anybody if she chose. Carlington was mad after her. She was romantic, though. All the women of that family were. The men were a poor lot, but egad, the women were wonderful. Carlington went on his knees to her, told me so himself. She laughed at him. There wasn't a girl in London at the time who wasn't after him. And, by the way, Harry, talking about silly marriages, what is this humbug your father tells me about Dartmoor wanting to marry an American? Ain't English girls good enough for him? It is rather fashionable to marry Americans just now, Uncle George. I'll back English women against the world, Harry, said Lord Furmore, striking the table with his fist. The betting is on Americans. They don't last, I'm told, muttered his uncle. <laughs> a long engagement exhausts them, but they are capital at a steeplechase. They take things flying. I don't think Dartmoor has a chance. Who are her people, grumbled the old gentleman. Has she got any? Lord Henry shook his head. American girls are as clever at concealing their parents as English women are at concealing their past, he said, rising to go. They're uh, pork packers, I suppose? I hope so, Uncle George. For Dartmoor's sake, I am told that pork packing is the most lucrative profession in America, eh, after politics. Is she pretty? She behaves as if she were beautiful. Most American women do. It is the secret of their charm. 
Why can't these uh, American women stay in their own country? They are always telling us that it's a paradise for women. It is. That's the reason why, like Eve, they are so excessively anxious to get out of it, said Lord Henry. Goodbye, Uncle George. I shall be late for lunch. If I stop any longer, thanks for giving me the information I wanted. I always like to know everything about my new friends and nothing about my old ones. Where are you lunching, Harry? Oh, he won't let him go. Get on Agatha's. I have asked myself and Mr. Gray. He is her latest protege. Humph! Tell your Aunt Agatha, Harry, not to bother me anymore with her charity appeals. I am sick of them. Why, the good woman thinks that I have nothing to do but to write checks for her silly fads. All right, Uncle George, I'll tell her. But it won't have any effect. Philanthropic people lose all sense of humanity. It's their distinguishing characteristic. The old gentleman growled approvingly and rang the bell for his servant. Lord Henry passed up the low arcade into the Burlington Street and turned his steps in the direction of Berkeley Square. So that the theory of Dorian Gray's parentage, crudely as it had been told to him, it had yet stirred him by a suggestion of a strange, almost modern romance, a beautiful woman risking everything for a mad passion, a few wild weeks of happiness cut short by hideous, treacherous crime, months of voiceless agony, and then a child born in pain. The mother snatched away by death, the boy left to solitude and the tyranny of an old and loveless man. Yes, it was an interesting background. It posed the lad, made him more perfect, as it were. Behind every exquisite thing that existed, there was something tragic. Worlds had to be in travail, that the meanest flower might blow. And how charming he had been at dinner the night before. With his startled eyes and lips parted in frightened pleasure, he had sat opposite him at the club, the red candle shades staining to a richer rose that waking wonder in his face. Talking to him was like playing upon an exquisite violin. He answered to every touch and thrill of the bow. There was something terribly enthralling in the exercise of influence. No other activity was like it. To protect one's soul into some gracious form and let it tarry there for a moment. To hear one's own intellectual views echo back with all the added music of passion and youth. To convey one's temperament into another as though it were a subtle fluid or a strange perfume. There was a real joy in that. Perhaps the most satisfying joy left to us in our age, so limited and vulgar as our own, in an age grossly carnal in its pleasures and grossly common in its aims, he was a marvelous type, too, this lad, whom, by so curious chance, he had met in Basil's studio, or could be fashioned into a marvelous type at any rate. Grace was his, and the white purity of boyhood, and beauty such as old Greek marbles kept for us. There was nothing that one could not do with him. He could be made a titan or a toy. What a pity. It was such a beauty. It was destined to fade. And Basil, from a, a psychological point of view, how interesting he was. The new manner and art, the fresh mode of looking at life, suggested so strangely by the merely visible presence of one who was unconscious of it all. The silent spirit that dwelt in dim woodland and walked unseen in open fields, suddenly showing herself, dryad-like, and not afraid, because in his soul, who sought for her there, had been awakened that wonderful vision to which alone are wonderful things revealed. 
and mere shapes and patterns of things becoming as if it were refined and gaining a kind of symbolical value, as though they were themselves patterns of some other and more perfect form whose shadow they made real. How strange it all was. He remembered something like it in history. Eh, it was not Plato, that artist in thought, who had first analyzed it. Eh, was it not a... Brunodi, <laughs> Bruonarati, Bru- I'm just sticking with that, who had carved in it the colored marbles of sonnet sequence. But in our own century, it was strange. Yes, he would try to be to what Dorian Gray would, without knowing it, the lad was a painter who had fashioned the wonderful portrait. He would seek to dominate him. Uh, had already indeed half done so. He would make that wonderful spirit his own. There was something fascinating in the son of love and death. Suddenly, he stopped and glanced up at the houses. He found what he had passed his aunts in some distance and, smiling to himself, turned back. When he entered the somewhat somber hall, the butler told him that they had gone in to lunch. He gave one of the footmen his hat and stick and passed into the dining room. Late as usual, Harry, cried his aunt, shaking her head at him. He uh, invited a facile excuse, and having taken the vacant seat next to her, looked around to see who was there. Dorian bowed to him shyly from the end of the table. A flush of pleasure was stealing into his cheek. Opposite was the Duchess of Harley, a lady of admirable good nature and good temper, much liked by everyone who knew her, and of those ample architectural proportions that in women who are not duchesses are described by contemporary historians as Stoutness. Next to her sat, on her right, Sir Thomas Burden, a radical member of Parliament, who followed his leader in public life and in private followed the best cooks, dining with the Tories and thinking with the Liberals, in accordance with their wise and well-known rule. The post on her left was occupied by Mr. Erskine of Treadley. An old gentleman of considerable charm and culture who had fallen, however, into bad habits of silence, having, as he explained, once to Lady Agatha, said everything that he had to say before he's thirty. His own neighbor was Mrs. Vandeleur, one of his aunt's oldest friends, a perfect saint amongst women, but so dreadfully dowdy that she reminded one of a badly bound hymn book. Fortunately for him, she had on the other side Lord Faudel, a most intelligent middle-aged mediocrity as bald as a ministerial statement in the House of Commons, uh, with whom she was conversing in that uh, intensely earnest manner, which is one marked a partable error, as he remarked uh, once upon himself that all really good people fall into, from which none of them ever quite escape. Uh, with that, let's take a little break. We'll take a moment to learn about a hot new book from Penguin Random House. Coming out on July 3rd, 2001. So that's coming out soon. Uh, it's 352 pages. Built from scratch. How a couple of regular guys grew the Home Depot from nothing to $30 billion by Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank. <clears throat> who I guess are the two guys on the cover of this book holding tools with Home Depot behind their head. Let's learn about Bill from scratch. 
one of the greatest entrepreneurial successes of the past 20 years, when a friend told Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank that, quote, you've been hit in the ass by a golden horseshoe. They thought he was crazy. After all, both had just been fired. What the friend, Ken Langon, meant was that now they had the opportunity to create the kind of wide-open warehouse store that would help spark a consumer revolution through low prices, excellent customer service, and wide availability of products. Who would buy this book? It's just a giant ad. Built from scratch is a story of how two incredibly determined and creative people and their associates built a business from nothing to 761 stores and $30 billion in sales in a mere 20 years. Built from Scratch tells many colorful stories associated with the Home Depot's founding and meteoric rise. Shows what a company can be through tough, growth-oriented competitors. <laughs> oh my god, it's already got the buzzwords and stuff. Growth-oriented competitor and still maintain a high sense of responsibility to the community and provides great lessons useful to people in any business, from startups to the Fortune 500. Great stories. Ming the Merciless, the inside account of a man who fired Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus. Uh, my people don't drive Cadillacs. How Ross Perot almost got involved with the Home Depot. Oh, that's a name you should really be tying yourself to. Take this job and shove it. The banker who put his career on the line to get the Home Depot the loan that enabled it to survive. Folks, I tell you, if these Atlanta stores were any bigger, they'd be paying Alabama t sales tax. Home Depot's first good old Southern advertising campaign. That is that big, long, wordy thing. A company with conscience. When disasters like the Oklahoma City bombing or Hurricane Andrew happen, Home Depot associates don't ask for permission to respond. They react with their hearts. Whether that means keeping their stores open all night or being on the scene with volunteers and relief supplies. The Home Depot doesn't just contribute, contribute money to organizations like Habitat for Humanity and Christmas in April, but it also provides its people to help lead and grow these community efforts. Great Lessons Know your customer. In the Home Depot's case, customers don't pay for wider aisles. Okay, this is just really long for a description, and there's no reviews. So, if you want to buy a giant advertisement, uh, get built from scratch. I'm sure it's really good and really inspiring, and you'll just get up and go buy something from Home Depot right away after reading it. And back to the story. We are talking about uh, poor Dartmoor, Lord Henry, cried the Duchess, nodding pleasantly to him across the table. Do you think you will really marry this fascinating young person? I believe she has made up her mind to propose to him, Duchess. How dreadful, exclaimed Lady Agatha. Really, someone should interfere. I am told on excellent authority that her father keeps an American dry goods store, said Sir Thomas Burden, looking supercilious. My uncle has already suggested pork packing, Sir Thomas. Dry goods? What are American dry goods? asked the Duchess, raising her large hands in wonder and accentuating the verb. American novels, answered Lord Henry, helping himself to some quail. The Duchess looked puzzled. Don't mind him, my dear, whispered Lady Agatha. He never means anything, he says. When America was discovered, said the radical member, and he began to give some wearisome facts. Like all people who try to exhaust a subject, he exhausted his listeners. 
The Duchess sighed and exercised her privilege of interruption. I wish to goodness it had never been discovered at all, she exclaimed. Really, our girls have no chance nowadays. It's almost unfair. Perhaps, after all, America never has been discovered, said Mr. Erkskin. I myself would say that it had merely been detected. Oh, but I have seen specimens of the inhabitants, answered the Duchess vaguely. I must confess that most of them are extremely pretty, and they dress well, too. They get all their dresses in Paris. I wish I could afford to do the same. They say that when good Americans die, they go to Paris, chuckled Sir Thomas, who had a large wardrobe of humor's cast-off clothes. Really? And where do bad Americans go when they die, inquired the Duchess. They go to America, murmured Lord Henry. <laughs> Sir Thomas frowned. I am afraid that your nephew is prejudiced against that great country, he said to Lady Agatha. I have traveled all over it in, in cars provided by our directors, who in such matters are extremely civil. I assure you that it is an education to visit it. But must we really see Chicago in order to be educated, asked Mr. Erkson plaintively. I don't feel up to the journey. Sir Thomas waved his hands. Mr. Erskine of Treadley was, has the world on his shelves. We practical men like to see things and not read about them. The Americans are an extremely interesting people. They are absolutely reasonable. I think that they are distinguishing characteristic. Yes, Mr. Erskine, an absolutely reasonable people. I assure you that there is no nonsense about the Americans. How dreadful, cried Lord Henry. I can stand brute force, but brute reason is quite unbearable. There is something unfair about its use. It is hitting below the intellect. I do not understand you, said Lord Sir, Sir Thomas, <laughs> growing rather red. I do, Lord Henry, murmured Mr. Erskine with a smile. Paradoxes are all very well in their way, rejoined the baronet. What... Uh, was that a paradox? asked Mr. Erskine. I did not think so. Perhaps it was. Well, the way of paradoxes is the way of truth. To test reality, we must see it on the tight rope. When the verities become acrobats, we can judge them. Dear me, said Lady Agatha, how you men argue. I am sure I can, uh, never can make out what you're talking about. Oh, Harry, I am quite vexed with you. Why do you try to persuade our nice Mr. Dorian Gray to give up the East End? I assure you he would be quite invaluable. They would love his playing. I want him to play with me, cried Lord Henry, smiling. And he looked down at the table and caught a bright answering glance. But they are so unhappy in Whitechapel, continued Lady Agatha. I can sympathize with everything except suffering, said Lord Henry, shrugging his shoulders. I cannot sympathize with that. It is too ugly, too horrible, too distressing. There is something terribly morbid in the modern sympathy with pain. One should sympathize with the color, the beauty, the joy of life. The less said about life's sores, the better. Still... The East End is a very important problem, remarked Sir Thomas with a grave shake of his head. Quite so, answered the young lord. It is the problem of slavery, and we try to solve it by amusing the slaves. The politician looked at him keenly. What charge do you propose then, he asked. Lord Henry laughed. I don't desire to change anything in England except the weather, he answered. I am quite content with philosophic contemplation, but as the 19th century has gone bankrupt through overexpenditure of sympathy, I would suggest that we should appeal to science to put us straight. 
The advantage of uh, emotions is that they lead us astray, and the advantage of science is that it is not emotional. But we have such grave responsibilities, ventured Miss uh, Vandeleur timidly. Terribly grave, echoed Lady Agatha. Lord Henry looked over at Mr. Erskine. Humanity takes itself too seriously. It is the world's original sin. If the cavemen had known how to laugh, history would have been different. You are uh, really comforting, warbled the Duchess. I have always felt rather guilty when I came to see your dear aunt, for I take no interest at all in the East End. For the future, I shall be able to look her in the face without a blush. A uh, blush is very becoming, Duchess, remarked Lord Henry. Only when one is young, she answered. When an old woman like myself blushes, it's a very bad sign. Ah, Lord Henry, I wish you would uh, tell me how to become young again. He thought for a moment. Can you remember any great error that you committed in your early days, Duchess? He asked, looking at her across the table. Uh, a great many, I fear, she cried. Then commit them over again, he said gravely. To get back one's youth, one has merely to repeat one's follies. Uh, a delightful theory, she exclaimed. I must put it into practice. A dangerous theory came uh, from Sir Thomas's tight lips. Lady Agatha shook her head, but could not help being amused. Mr. Erskine listened. Yes, he continued. This is one of the great secrets of life. Nowadays, most people die of a sort of creeping common sense and discover uh, when it is too late that the only things one never regrets are one's mistakes. A laugh ran around the table. Cause that was hilarious. He played with the idea and grew willful, tossed it into the air and transformed it, let it escape and recaptured it, made it iridescent with fancy and winged it with paradox. The praise of folly, as he went on, soared into a philosophy, and a philosophy herself became young and, and catching the mad music of pleasure, wearing, one might fancy, her wine-stained robe and wreath of ivory, danced like a banchette over the hills of life and mocked the slow Selenius for being sober. Facts fled before her like frightened forest things. Her white feet trod the huge press at which the wise Omar sits, till the seething grape juice rose around her bare limbs in waves of purple bubbles, or crawled in red foam over the vat's black, dripping, slopping sides. It was an extraordinary improvisation. He felt that the eyes of Dorian Gray were fixed on him, and the consciousness that amongst his audience there was one of whose temperament he wished to fascinate seemed to give his wit neeness and to lend color to his imagination. He was brilliant, fantastic, irresponsible. He charmed his listeners out of themselves, and they followed his pipe, laughing. Dorian Gray never took his gaze off him, but sat like one under a spell, smiles chasing each other over his lips and wander growing grave in his darkening eyes. At last, liveried in the costume of the age, reality entered the room in the shape of a servant to tell the Duchess that her carriage is waiting, again with the servants always ruining the mood. She wrung her hands in mock despair. How annoying, she cried. I must go. I have to call for my husband at the club to take him to some absurd meeting at the Willis Rooms where he is going to be in the chair. If I am late, he is sure to be furious. And I couldn't have a scene in this bonnet. It is far too fragile. A harsh word should ruin it. No, I must go, dear Agatha. Goodbye, Lord Henry. You are quite delightful and dreadfully demoralizing. I am sure I don't know what to say about your views. 
but you must come and dine with us some night. Tuesday? Are you disengaged Tuesday? For you, I would throw over anybody, Duchess, said Lord Henry with a bow. Ah, that is very nice. And very wrong of you, she cried. So mind you come. And she swept out of the room, followed by Lady Agatha and the other ladies. When Lord Henry had sat down again, Mr. Erskine moved around. And taking a chair close to him, placed his hand upon his arm. You talk books away, he said. Why don't you write one? I am too fond of reading books to care to write them, said Mr. Erskine. I should like to write a novel, certainly. A novel that would be as lovely as a Parisian carpet and as unreal. But there is no literary public in England for anything except newspapers, primers, and encyclopedias. Who's sitting around reading encyclopedias? Of all people in the world, the English have uh, the least sense of beauty of literature. I fear you're right, answered Mr. Erskine. I myself have used to have literary ambitions, but I have given them up long ago. And now, my dear young friend, if you will allow me to call you so, may I ask if you really meant all that you said to us at lunch? I quite forget what I said, smiled Lord Henry. Was it all very bad? Oh, very bad indeed. In fact, I consider you extremely dangerous. And if anything happens to our good duchess... Uh, we shall look upon you as being primarily responsible. But I should like to talk uh, to you about life. The generation into which I was born was tedious. Someday, when you're tired of London, come down to Treadley and expound to me your philosophy of pleasure with some admirable burgundy I am fortunate enough to possess. Oop, got an email. I shall be charmed. A visit to Treadley would be a great privilege. It has a perfect host. And a perfect library. You will complete it, answered the old gentleman with a courteous bow. And now I must bid goodbye to your excellent aunt. I am due at the Athenium. It is the hour when we sleep there. All of you, Mr. Er Erskine? Forty of us in forty armchairs. We are practicing for an English Academy of Letters. Lord Henry laughed and rose. Ah, I am going to the park, he cried. As he was passing out the door, Dorian Gray touched him on the arm. Let me come with you, he murmured. But I thought you had promised Basil Halward to go and see him, answered Lord Henry. I would sooner come with you. Yes, I feel I must come with you. Do let me. And you will promise to talk to me all the time. No one talks so wonderfully as you do. Ah, I have talked quite enough for today, said Lord Henry, smiling. All I want now is to look at life. You may come and look at it with me if you care to. So that was the picture of Dorian Gray, chapter three. Uh, what did we learn? Uh, Lord Henry spares the First half of the book, talking to his uncle about Dorian's family history, which was wrapped in scandal. Uh, we learned that American women are the hot new item for some reason. I imagine it's kind of a lot like the people I know that would go to Japan to try and pick up women. And the people that would go to Japan to pick up women were kind of weirdos that probably had a hard time finding women here. They were just kind of into video games and watching anime and and didn't have a lot of social skills. Uh, 
so apparently that was a big problem uh, back at the turn of the century with uh, uh, Englishmen. Uh, Harry goes to his Aunt Agatha's house uh, where he tells jokes about hedonism. He's really selling the hedonism because the author was all about it. Uh, saying, if you want to stay young forever, you got to get naughty to the Duchess. And uh, everyone giggles and says, oh, you're so bad. And then uh, everyone invites him over to their house for dinners. Uh, Erskine tells Henry to, uh, to write books. And he says, ah, no one, no one reads here in England except for encyclopedias, which I thought was weird. Uh, and then Lord Henry and Dorian go out and take a walk to, quote, look at life. So that's where we left off. A little bit slow moving in the first three chapters, but at least it's been established. Uh, we're learning that Dorian is very impressionable and just loves this guy. So he's got him wrapped around his little finger and uh, he's an, you know, emotionally abuse him probably. He's already started off doing that pretty good on his part, doing the neg. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, I sort of know how it plays out. I read this book like 10 years ago, but I don't really remember that well. So make sure to tune in next time. Uh, to learn more about what happens to beautiful, pouty-lipped Dorian. Thanks for listening. Uh, go leave a review. People say that. I never do it on any podcast I listen to. I don't go running out to iTunes, download iTunes, and then just leave a review. I don't expect you to do the same, but I'm supposed to say it. Uh, and then uh, tell your friends, because I'm sure there's a lot of friends that say I want someone to read to me. And then you'll say, oh, I got the perfect podcast for you. So make sure to do all that. Thanks.